Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So the topic of my lecture was uh, fairly broad, and what it boils down to is how we might turn these things, trees, into personal care products like shampoos or creams and lotions, into electronics or materials that can be used in electronics, and into scaffolds for tissue engineering. And that was what I thought I was going to talk about when I gave Hillary the detailed uh, topic. And then I started to write the lecture and I thought, you know, that's going to get a bit silly. It's going to be a mishmash of everything. And so I'm going to focus on the materials for electronics because it's one of our big projects at the moment that is quite exciting and it covers quite a lot of different topics. So I do apologize to anybody who came specifically to hear about tissue scaffolds. They'll just have to get me back. I love talking about my research, so I'm always happy to do so. So the project I'm going to discuss then is called uh, Closed Loop Emotionally Valuable E-Waste Recovery, which, if you turn that into an acronym, is clever, uh, almost as good as gulp. I guess it was probably arrived at after about the same number of beers, about the same sort of time in the evening. Certainly this was with a group of um, scientists and engineers who were in the middle of what's known as an EPSRC sandpit, where our, one of our major funding bodies invites people to a hotel locks them in for four days and says, you don't leave till you come up with some really good project proposals. And if they're really, really good, we'll give you enough money to actually do the research, which is how we got to do this particular project. So let's put that into some context then. You were asked to all turn off your mobile phones, and I'm guessing everybody sort of reached for one. You don't see many people without these anymore. And there are lots and lots of other devices that we might have, small electronic devices. And all of the data that I'm going to present in the next few slides is not ours. It comes from a website called What's in My Stuff, which was a study, which is the summary of a study carried out at Sheffield Hallam University. And it has some really, really interesting data. Most of it's current. Some of it's a few years old. So if anything, the numbers are bigger than presented on the screen at the moment. So while we sit here, a thousand mobile phones will be replaced. I won't talk for the full hour, but you'll probably be here for an hour. There are 85 million mobile phones lying unused in the UK. That's probably a larger number now. This was collected, as I say, a few years ago. Just the precious metals in those mobile phones is worth 150 million pounds. This is starting to look like something that shouldn't be lying around in your sock drawer. If you then look at what people do with these mobile phones, you find that actually a heck of a lot of them are lying around in people's sock drawers. So a small number are recycled, quite a lot are passed on. This is a very good use. In other words, this is being used by, well, actually, it probably goes the other way. I was going to say being used by your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter. Actually, it probably goes the other way. Grandson probably gets a new flash one and says, Gran, would you like my mobile phone? It's old. You probably like it. Um, I know that mine is ancient. But these are the ones that we need to concern ourselves with, all these so-called hibernating devices. And it's not just mobile phones. We've got lots of things. I've got three laptops sitting in my office because I don't know what to do with them. Well, I do know what to do with them, actually. I should take them down to our recycling depot and make sure that they're properly recycled. But that means I have to do it, and I just haven't got around to doing it. And we all have this attachment to these things. We seem to get attached to the data that is in them or something. And we think, well, I'll keep it for a backup. Who last used their backup mobile phone? I don't even know how to turn my backup mobile phone on. So there they are lurking in the drawers. And in fact, they're quite a valuable resource. So there's not very much gold in the ore that we win gold from. There is a lot more gold 
and other metals to boot in our e-waste. So actually, if we wanted to mine anything, we might want to try mining this instead of going and digging up more of Australia. I think that's an Australian gold mine. There are lots of other metals that are involved in this as well. So I've referred to gold just because we all get quite keen on the idea of nice, bright, shiny, valuable gold. But there are lots of other metals that are in mobile phones. More to the point, though, there are lots of metals that we don't have a lot of. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't a lot of them in the Earth's crust. There are loads in the Earth's crust. But there aren't that many of them in Europe. And quite a few of these are in your mobile phone and your other electronic devices. So the ones that are marked in red here, at current use and current mining levels, will run out in the next 5 to 50 years. What that does tell you is probably not that they will run out, but that they will become significantly more expensive. If I had any sense, I'd be buying up certain types of uh, mining shares where people mine particular metals and holding on to them because they're going to become more valuable. Let's have a look at just a few of those metals then. And I'm picking ones we know well. Silver. Whoever thought silver might be a threatened resource? Gold, a threatened resource. We're using these more and more in electronics, not less and less. They're very good conductors. They're much better than lead in solder, if you use a silver solder or a silver ink. And indium, a metal that you might not know well, but it's in the screen of many of your devices in the form of indium tin oxide. So conducting oxides for those screens. And here are some estimates, and I've taken this from an article in Scientific American. Um, at current rates, 2029. Now, I don't think I'll even have been allowed to retire by 2029, at least not under current policies. Um, 2030, gold, the next year. I think I might retire that year. Actually, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And indium just before that. So we do actually need to think about what we do with these so-called critical minerals. And this is the key for us, sitting in the UK, which is still currently part of Europe. If we look at uh, the data that was correct, collected together in a report for the European Commission, and I am emphasizing that this is European data, because the same is not true everywhere. South Africans are not worried about running out of gold. They'll just stop selling it to us. I'm South African, maybe I'll just have to go back. But look at this. If you look at the 20 critical raw materials, a lot of them are owned by China. Other is just gathering everybody else together. The US has quite a lot of these, but actually doesn't mine quite a lot of them because they can buy them more cheaply from China or Russia or places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, probably not something that crosses your radar very often, but if you're buying certain types of metals, it should do. Looking a little more closely then at that across the world, we're looking at where some of these key metals lie, and you'll see a big grey patch over here where we live. We don't mine many of these things in Europe in significant quantities. So if we're gathering them all together in things like e-waste, we probably shouldn't be letting that e-waste leak, as it were, back out of the country. But there are other reasons why we might not want to keep mining and using more and more of these metals. This is a mineral called coltan, and it contains a metal called tantalum. And tantalum is widely used in certain types of electronic components. There is indeed tantalum in all of the electronics you'll be using, particularly the very small ones. Tantalum is almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost exclusively, derived from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And if you know anything about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you probably will know that they have had a civil war for... 
20 years since it restarted. More than 20 years since it restarted. If you ask people that live there, they'd probably tell you they've been having a civil war for more than 50 years. And one of the ways that war is funded is by the sale of so-called blood minerals. And you'll see that if you look at things like Fairphone adverts, they will refer to this and they will say that if you keep replacing your phone and so driving up the demand for tantalum, and I'm using a phone here as code for electronic devices, okay? I'm not suggesting just mobile phones. Then you may, in fact, be helping to fund conflict in the DRC. Once you've used up your electronic devices and gotten rid of them, you may put them into a recycling bin and they may go to genuine recycling facilities or they may be collected up and exported. And unfortunately, this does still happen to a very, very significant degree where e-waste is sent to countries who want it. This is a valuable resource to this chap, but it's also shortening his life very significantly because of the way that the e-waste is being recovered and all of the deleterious chemical compounds that he is inhaling from incinerating this, what looks like an old television set in this form. And this is a similar operation in China. And these are genuine photographs that um, I do have the attributions for. But even if you don't care about any of that, we're exporting valuable metals as well. We're exporting valuable materials that we don't have more of, that we will have to purchase more of. Which brings us to the concept of the circular economy. And this is a graphic, um, I believe it comes from the RSA, that describes the different options for circularity in a circular economy. And they will tell you that the smaller you can keep this circle, the less impact you will be having on the environment. In other words, if you can reuse or redesign or refix or repair, you're doing a lot better than if you have to send something right out here into a recycling loop. But there are some things that you do have to send out into a recycling loop. Uh, devices don't last forever, and eventually it will be desirable to recover the materials from them. And that was where we started thinking about this particular project. We thought, well, how do you begin to close the loop on certain types of manufactured devices? And we chose small electronic devices as an example. And I've, I've framed this as a problem because if you just think about the 85 million hibernating phones in the UK, which has a reasonably good infrastructure for recycling, or at least for recovering things, they do tend to be sent elsewhere for recycling, we're still not doing it. They're still sitting in your sock drawer. So this is where at least one of the issues lies. It's with our own behavior. We don't necessarily do what we logically might think we should be doing. The other part of it is once it gets into the recycling loop, how do we recover it? At the moment, some of the best recycling of mobile phones, and I'm excluding reuse here because I've already said the best thing to do is to pass it on to somebody else. But when it's genuinely sent for recycle and metals recovery, it goes to um, facilities on the continent usually, and the entire device is burned up. The plastics in it are used as the fuel that melts everything with a bit more fuel added, melts everything and you end up with the metal as a slag. And from that metal you can recover the silver quite easily, you can recover the gold relatively easily, you can recover the copper but there's not all that much copper in phones anymore. And then there are one or two other metals that it's, it, it's viable to recover and after that it's just not worth doing. So not the best option. Oops, sorry. Looks like someone else has logged on for me somewhere else. Let's do that. I don't want to print, so it doesn't matter which one I choose. Hopefully it won't come up again. So that brought us to our closed-loop uh, e-waste recycling concept, and this is the team, because I might forget to talk about them later on. You recognize me, and I'm a chemist. 
Ben is a structural engineer, but he now works in materials testing and characterization, and, uh, characterization, and specifically he will say that he focuses on sustainable solutions. Jackie Lee is an expert in design for the environment and life cycle assessment, so measuring what we do as an impact. Deborah Lilly is a designer focused on user-centered sustainable design, and we brought in as well a human geographer. Now, I've not often worked with people like human geographers, but we realized there were human aspects to this problem. There are design aspects to this problem. We need to be kept honest. We need to know that what we're doing is not increasing the environmental impact of recycling or recovering the phones. And we need to be able to deal with new materials. And the project uh, in its graphic that we present to the research councils looks like that. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about each of the work packages. Uh, you needn't worry about them in a lot of detail, except that the word that's quite interesting that I would like you to keep in mind is this emotionally durable concept. And I'll tell you what emotionally durable means in this respect in a minute. To try and picture what we were doing, we envisaged something like a mobile phone as if it was an organism. Something that has a skin, the outside, the bit that you feel when you use it, the part you interact with. Something that has inside it a skeleton that holds everything together, and on that skeleton, it has the organs, the high-tech bits that do the job. And that allowed us to start to think about how we might take this apart. It was quite a useful little analogy. And this is what we thought. We thought, well, if the part that you interact with, the skin, the outer bit, was something that you liked so much that you wanted to keep it, then you might be inclined to return it to the manufacturer when you needed an upgrade, rather than just putting it in your drawer and buying a new one, or hiring a new one, or taking a lease on a new one. And if the manufacturer was able to quickly whip it apart, take the old bits out, put the new bits in, and give it back to you in the time it took you to have a cup of coffee, because I'm very impatient, then you might be rather happy, because you still had your beautiful skin, but you had your nice new high-tech hardware inside. And that would mean that the bits that you had discarded were now... My word, I'm not having a good time with this one, am I? Bits that you'd discarded were now in the hands of the manufacturer again and could be returned into that manufacturing loop. And so then we thought, well, the skin. The skin, currently we don't do much with the skin, do we? It's nice and shiny and plastic and we don't do much else. How do we make that a material that people might become attached to? What is it that builds attachment? Is it what I call the mega bling? Well, probably if I'd paid for this, I'd want to keep it, although I'd be too embarrassed to bring it out in public. But we do have other materials that we like. We like leather when it's old. We don't actually like new leather very much. We say it ages gracefully, it becomes beautiful. Things that develop a particular feeling or a particular look, and indeed even a function, it becomes softer and more pleasant. Are we prepared to pay for aging gracefully? Well, actually, we already do. This is taken from a website called The Reclamation Shop. You can buy new flagstones for £21 a, a square metre, and you can buy old flagstones for double that. Why? Because we think the old flagstones look better. We like the patina that has developed with age. But we don't like this in our digital products. We want them to be bright and new and shiny. And people have done a lot of work into this, and Jonathan Chapman in particular is an expert in this, and he says, we want everything to be slick and shiny and to reflect this high-tech device, to reflect what we see as new and shiny. That's not entirely true. There is a sort of a bit of a counterculture, and if you go onto the internet and you just look up a couple of photos of, I think this is called Pimp Your iPhone or something similar, um, you'll find that actually this, this is a case, but it's meant to mimic 
an iPhone that has been cracked and has then been treated with a whole suite of magic markers. And there are hundreds of photos like this of people who've actually done this. So there is some interest in personalizing things, in showing that yours is different to other people's. It's not new, it's been known for many years. This is a craft in Japan that is widely um, considered to be of great value, where something, instead of hiding any damage, you enhance the damage. So you repair your ceramic with new ceramic material that contains gold, and it looks rather attractive. And again, you might think that's just a very niche Japanese thing. Well, no, you can buy a set of Limoges plates, 12 dinner plates, all formed in this way, and you can pay nearly $2,000 for them. So again, there is some sense that there is interest in materials that age. So Ben and his crew decided to look at artificial aging because we can't wait for 20 years to see how the phone case ages. We need to be able to do it more quickly. And so they had to develop a whole suite of new test methods, and this is the engineering sort of stuff that they do. And those test methods had to be things like what happens to a phone when it's in your pocket, so when it encounters lots of other bits like coins and keys, and what happens to a phone when it rubs against your skin. And so they chose a material called Lorica, which behaves a little like skin. And this is what they do, and if you go to their lab, it's terribly noisy, because they have some nice new phones in these test capsules with the various bits and pieces that you might have in your pocket, and they rattle them around, and they let the phones become worn. And they do this on a lot of different potential casing materials, and then try to discover, A, what's happened to them, and B, how people feel about it. And to do that, they need to have some quite sophisticated test methods. It's all very well saying, I've got a scratched case. But if you were trying to do this on a production line and make a material that aged in a particular way or find out how people responded to materials that behaved in a different way, you would need an entirely objective way of measuring that wear. And so what they do is a lot of very clever image analysis, and I've chosen a piece of wood here just as an example, where they deconvolute that image into a whole series of squares where the bigger the square is, the more constant the color is over a region, so the less wear in the worn example there would be, and they can then turn this into a series of metrics which allows them to compare these and say, everybody thought this material aged okay, they didn't mind it when it was worn, and its signature is X. They didn't like this one, its signature is Y. We now have a way of comparing materials. And then they moved on and they said, well, we'd like to actually make some new materials, and what might be interesting? Uh, does anybody recognize this? It's a, it's a remarkable colored mineral. It's called Fordite. And it's called Fordite because the first example of it uh, was taken from some of the paint shops of the Ford Motor Company. It used to be that cars were sprayed far more lavishly with paint than they are now, and a lot of paint went all over the paint shop and got caught in the corners. And over the years, layers and layers and layers of it built up. And when they decommissioned these paint shops, some rather enterprising people bought up the now extremely hard, you know what automotive paint is like, the extremely hard paint and polished it up and turned it into all sorts of beautiful pieces of jewelry. And I love this because I like bright colors. But this um, inspired Ben and his team. And they thought, well, perhaps there is a way to develop a material that you can put on the outside of a casing that ages in a similar way that slowly reveals new layers and shows interesting things. So they needed it to be all of these things, highly durable, unique, customized or customizable. They wanted it to age gracefully, and then they thought, actually, why just stick with gracefully? Why not go for spectacularly? 
And so they're working on a series of materials that as they age, change their appearance quite significantly and very, very distinctly. So that hopefully this is now worn in the shape of your hand, for example. It is yours. It has some value to you. So that's what my colleagues that deal with the skins do, their materials work. We deal with the skeleton and the organs, so we do the inside bits. And what do we want to do? Well, we want to be able to recover these skeletons. Now, I've already implied that it might be possible to instantaneously take a phone apart. I said that was part of what you'd need to do if you did this. And other people have already come up with a solution to this. We didn't need to. There are some very clever, smart materials that you can use in so-called active disassembly. And this is an example of one. This is a polymer which can be formed into a screw. And if you warm it up, not very much, this is still less than the temperature of boiling water, the screw will straighten out, turning into something more like a nail, and will just pop out of its hole. And you can design all manner of interesting um, fasteners and holders that will just come apart as you heat them. And as I said, not our work. This is work pioneered by Joe Chiodo, and he has a very interesting website where you can actually go and look at these things. I won't run this video because it always seems to cause problems, but you can see all sorts of shape memory polymers or shape memory alloys. And this has been used. Nokia have actually tested taking phones apart in exactly this way, and they've made more than just prototypes. They've made short runs to test this in. So we've got these different loops that we're dealing with. We've talked a little bit about the people, and I'm going to come back to this one, because for me, the people stuff is always the hard bit. But once we've got it at least into the store, and it can be disassembled rapidly using active disassembly, we can move into another loop where we've got those rejected components. Now we need to get them off the skeleton. I'll come back to that in a middle, minute. Recover the valuable parts, possibly recover just the metals from it if the parts themselves are not reusable, Feed those metals back into the manufacturing stream. Hey presto, although it's a series of loops, it is ultimately a closed loop. We could bypass certain parts of the loop and possibly take some of the parts and put them straight back into new phones, possibly lower spec phones. That's all very well, but what about this bit? If you look at a phone that's been taken apart, and this is us doing it uh, in a room in London, this is some of the team sitting around the table, my back, thank goodness. Um, you'll see that you've got all bits of phones, it's easy to take them apart and see what's in them, but they're still not actually taken apart into their component bits. You've got a circuit board, and this is a very old-fashioned phone, but you've got a circuit board that still holds all of the circuits. You've got the switch board, the board that has the little contacts on it, it still has all of the metals on it. Those are not ready for reuse as they are. So what we needed then was a way to separate the organs from the skeleton. And we started looking around, and there have been some examples. So the National Physics Laboratory in the US uh, published this particular bit of work where they said, you know, take a circuit board, add hot water, the thing will come apart, and you can recover the bits. Well, that's fine, but hot water is perhaps a little bit easy to get onto your phone or your other device. It might break down while you're using it, and you can't afford that to happen. This one degrades even more readily, uh, and in 10 minutes it's gone. Well, I don't know anybody who turns their phone over quite that fast. So we thought about that a little more and we said, well, you need, a, you need a skeleton that is robust. It needs to either be rigid or flexible. Uh, we always think circuit boards need to be super stiff, but in fact, there are more and more flexible uh, circuit supports developing. It mustn't be conductive because that rather defeats the object of the circuit board. Uh, it mustn't be flammable because you don't want your phone going up in flames while you're using it. It must be smooth because it must be printable. 
these two actually go together, it needs to be processable, it can't be something that can't be made in large quantities. We want it to degrade when it's triggered, so what we're saying is it's robust in use, but when I've got it back, I need to have a particular trigger that allows me to take it apart completely and have all the bits be easy to recover. And actually, if you talk to the manufacturers, can you also make it cheap on top of that? So, you know, just a very small order there. But as often happens, if you think about these things a little more and you start to look at nature, there are materials that do this. One of the most renewable or most readily renewed biopolymers in the world is cellulose. There is a heck of a lot of it, and this number will change depending on who you ask. The point is it is big, no matter how you look at it. A lot of it is renewed annually, and we know, um, if you've had an allotment that was as productive as mine this year, you know that a lot is produced. If I have to eat another zucchini, I don't know what. They don't have much um, cellulose in them, they have a lot of water, but nonetheless, things grow. And we don't actually use all that much of it. You can probably guess where most of this is used. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Where's most cellulose used? Paper. Paper. Actually, we're using less of it. The paper industry are looking quite hard for other ways to uh, keep doing business and selling cellulose of one form or another. And they'd really like to sell higher value products than paper if they possibly could. So there is opportunity here. Here is a material that we can use. Does it do what we want it to do? Well, yeah, it does. It's incredibly robust in use. Trees stand up for a very long time, and most of that is a function of the cellulose in their cell walls. But once it dies, and once the protective molecules disappear, it is quite readily broken down by fungi, because they excrete the right sort of enzyme to do that. So that's fine, we've got a material, we think this is brilliant, and why do you think people don't make everything of cellulose? Well, very simple chemical reasons. It's a great polymer, it's a homopolymer of glucose. It's very, very simple. And chemists are kind of reductionist scientists. We actually quite like things to be simple. That means we can draw the structures and we think we know what they're going to do. So it's a homopolymer of glucose, but in spite of the fact that glucose itself is incredibly water-soluble, the homopolymer is not. It tends to be cross-linked by things called hydrogen bonds, so these weak interactions between OH groups on the surfaces of each of the polymer chains. That's one sheet of cellulose, Another sheet of cellulose sits, oh sorry, actually that's in the wrong way, this is a side view. That's one sheet of cellulose, and that's another sheet of cellulose sitting above it. And that means it's incredibly hard to dissolve. It doesn't even dissolve in quite aggressive solvents. There are very few solvents for dissolving cellulose. But one of the solvents happens to be one I'm quite interested. So ionic liquids dissolve cellulose. Now, what the heck is an ionic liquid? Well, it's actually what it says on the tin. It's ionic, it's a salt, but it's a salt that in the temperatures we want to use it, so round about room temperature, is a liquid. So sodium chloride melts way up, about 800 and something degrees, I think. I'm probably going to get that wrong. But anyway, melts at a high temperature. Whereas this thing, which is called butyl methylimidazolium triflate, melts at a much lower temperature. So we can take this material, dissolve our recalcitrant cellulose, and turn it into other things. And you can buy these ionic liquids. You don't have to make them yourself, although they're easy to make chemically. And our favorite one is this chap, ethylmethylimidazolium acetate. So there's the cation, that would be like the sodium ion in sodium chloride, and there's the anion, which is in fact the anion that is the conjugate base of acetic acid, the stuff that you drink in vinegar. This is one of the least toxic of the ionic liquids that we are able to access. And they have interesting properties, a few of them I'll just point out. Negligible vapor pressure, well that's because it's a salt. So sodium chloride doesn't evaporate. You can leave it out on the bench for ages, and all that will happen is it will get wet. 
Similarly, these things don't evaporate. The advantage to that in processing, no fugitive emissions for people to breathe in compared to many other solvents that you might use. And luckily, it dissolves even things like cellulose. Now, lots of work's been done on this. We can't claim it all ourselves, and these are probably some of the key people in the field. Uh, Robin Rogers first described this dissolution, although it had actually been noticed about 100 years before, but no one had exploited it. Roberto Rinaldi pointed out that we don't have to use pure ionic liquids, we can use mixtures, and our small contribution in the field was that we developed a foaming agent, which is an ionic liquid-based foaming agent that reforms the ionic liquid and allows us to make lightweight foams. The lightweight foams are no good for our electronics, but they are very useful for other things. What we do for instead for our electronic-based materials is we look at composite materials made of cellulose. So this is these... I must get post up some glasses. It's out of focus. But these are different types of fillers mixed with the cellulose and formed into films. And you can see they are reasonably stiff, but flexible and don't break as you bend them. I chose two rather mundane fillers here, calcium carbonate and cloisite clay, but we've tried a whole series, and I'll show you some more exciting ones in a minute. I remember we said it mustn't be flammable. Now, you all know cellulose is flammable. Usually, you know, you forgot to bring a match to the barbecue, so you go and light a piece of paper on the stove, and you go running outside, and you quickly stick it in the barbecue because the paper burns for a long time, and it sustains a flame. So we need to choose fillers that are going to impart some flame retardancy. And that's one of the main reasons for doing them. We don't need stiffer films. Our films are stiff enough, as they are. Here is an example of a cellulose film that is filled with, I'm not sure I say what it is on there, but I believe it's calcium silicate, and you can see it forms a homogeneous white film, or it would if it didn't have a pinhole in it. And here you can see in the scanning electron microscope, you can see the particles of calcium silicate. These are too big. That film is probably going to be slightly rougher than we really want to print on. More to the point, we're not going to get a lot of benefit from the flame retardancy because each of the particles is big and there is cellulose in between them that is not covered or is not covering the flame retardant material. Here is a slightly better film shown in cross-section. You can see it is reasonably homogeneous. This has been snapped, so you're seeing some of the result of that snapping process. But you can see that you can't see any big lumps of the filler in it, at least not in this one. Oh, sorry, that's the plain film, I lie. This is the filled film, and you can see it is denser. So we, we were able to make decent materials with them properly dispersed, and then we needed to test the flame retardancy. And this is plain old cellulose, a very, very sophisticated setup. This, you can see, we've got a bit of uh, film, we've got a Bunsen burner on a 45-degree uh, angle, and a stopwatch. And what happens is you bring the flame up to the film. The film we might not be able to see from where you're sitting. It has two lines drawn on it, one there and one there. And this scientist will record when it passes the first line and when it passes the second line. And the worse, the worse the material behaves, the quicker it will burn up and the less use it is to us. And that's our cellulose film burning up far, 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 far too quickly. So we need a different sort of material. This is the filler that you saw earlier, the calcium silicate filler. Well, it's still going to burn, unfortunately. You bring your flame up to it, you set fire to it. It burns a little bit more slowly, so it doesn't sustain the flame nearly as well. But unfortunately, it still sustains a flame and it would not be considered a material suitable for any application in electronics. This is our cellulose film. It looks like a plain cellulose film because it looks almost clear. You might be able to see it very slightly milky. It contains a filler called ammonium polyphosphate, and that 
when you try to set fire to it, does not sustain a flame, as hopefully you'll see in a minute. It goes out. The scientist being sceptical does it again, and it continues to go out. It does not sustain a flame, it does not burn. We have something that is flame retardant. That's one small problem <coughs> partially solved. Now we have another one. Cellulose likes water. It might not dissolve in water, but it absorbs water. You get a cotton shirt wet, it'll get nice and soggy very quickly. It soaks water up. And that's what happens when you test the contact angle by putting a drop of water on a cellulose film and measuring this internal angle. The lower this angle is, the more it wets the surface. When you add the filler, and this is one of the fillers that actually is no good as a flame retardant, it does do something to that. It stops the water wetting the surface quite as well, and of course wetting will also translate eventually into absorption into the surface. But we thought, well, that's still not good enough, so we need to apply a hydrophobizing agent on the surface, and we chose a very simple uh, monomer which forms a polymer, which you probably know if you've used superglue. And you can coat the surface with a very, very, very thin layer of that. In fact, it's such a thin layer, we're having difficulty detecting it with most of the methods that we can, uh, we can use. And the two guys that try to do it are in the audience. They can tell you about it. But when you put the sorry, when you put the filler in, it still retains that reasonable hydrophobized surface. And this is no longer our favorite hydrophobizing agent. Saravanan's come up with a much better one since then. So we can start to change the surface. And depending on how we choose our hydrophobizing agent, and you don't need to worry about what these are, I can tell you if you're very interested, you'll see that combining the cellulose with a very small amount, only 5 weight percent of A filler, and then treating it with a hydrophobizing agent in some cases gives you a fabulous hydrophobizing effect. And that's because your hydrophobizing agent, this one in particular, reacts both with the surface of the cellulose and with the filler. So you get a very nicely hydrophobized surface. And that means that you've got a surface that will support a droplet rather than allow things to spread. Now, there's another reason, apart from just not letting things get wet, that we want that to happen. We want to work towards properly printed electronics, so not the reductionist process we use at the moment where you etch away a circuit board till you get to the conductive material layered into it, but one where you print on the surface. And we've got lots of colleagues here at Bath that do this. And you want to be able to print nice, defined, clear, small tracks of silver ink, for example. You may also want to print conductive inks of some form that can go onto bendy surfaces, flexible surfaces. But in both of these cases, you need very, very nicely defined tracks. And it turns out that our surface hydrophobizing is what's required to turn cellulose, which when you try to print with a conductive ink, just forms a bit of a mess quite frankly. These are meant to be individual dots, and we want the individual dots to remain discrete. Not because we think you can form a circuit from individual dots, but because that way we know the ink is not bleeding across the surface. And you can see the untreated surfaces, both of the filled material and the unfilled material, bleed horribly, whereas the, the coated materials, and including the filled and coated material, retain their separate drops. So it turns out that the hydrophobized surface is going to be required even if we didn't need to stop water ingress because we need it for the printing purposes. So that's fine. We've gone through our process from dissolving our cellulose, blending in our fillers. I didn't tell you about the casting and forming it. It's probably not awfully exciting. We set and leach it by something called phase inversion, which means you add something like water or methanol or another similar solvent, which immediately causes the cellulose to coagulate. It's a commonly used process in uh, 
processing certain types of polymers, and it also happens to leach out your ionic liquid, which is important because we don't want it to remain in. Remember, it's conductive, which allows you to recover the ionic liquid. So in your manufacturing process, you keep that cycling here. You then surface treat, and then what? Well, you might be able to make your circuit. I said we could print nicely with conductive inks on these now. So now we're at this point. We want to be able to take our material after it's been used and decompose it and get back the bits. How on earth are we going to do that? Well, I gave you some clues. I said that cellulose degrades in the forest. There's probably these things all over your clothes if you're wearing cotton clothes as well. You know, if you leave a bit of cotton um, wet for too long, you left your gym gear in your bag and it gets little black spots on it. Those are things feeding on the cotton, if it's cellulose, in your, in your garment and forming little fungi. And the, the dark stuff is probably the fruiting body of the fungi. There are many gorgeous fungi that secrete extracellular enzymes that degrade cellulose. They're called cellulases as a broad group because they break down cellulose. But in fact, there are a lot of very discrete groups of enzymes within that. And we don't have to develop them, thank heavens because there's a huge amount of work being done on degrading cellulose. People want to break it down to the sugars to make so-called second-generation biofuels, so to take it and ferment it into ethanol. I can think of better things to do with ethanol than putting it in my car, maybe diluting it, putting a lot of nice, having a lot of nice impurities in from the yeast excreta and uh, keeping it in a corked bottle for some time before you drink it. It's a good use if you ask me, but people want to burn it. And so the second-generation biofuels market is driving development of cellulitic enzymes. There are cocktails of enzymes out there that you can buy that will break down cellulose very, very, very well. And this is exactly what we do. We take our material, and you'll see that our cellulose films actually degrade more quickly than just a standard filter paper, or more readily than just a standard filter paper. All you need to know is big bars mean rapid and complete degradation. The enzymes themselves are very interesting. I'm not an enzyme expert, but we do work with some enzyme experts in Brazil, of all places. Why do we work with enzyme experts in Brazil? There's lots in the UK. Because it's sunny in Brazil when it's cold in the UK, and it means I can go and do some research somewhere warm. <laughs> and I'm only partly joking. <laughs> They're very interesting things. They have these little tails called cellulose binding modules, which recognize the surface of the cellulose and bring the active machinery of the enzyme down onto the surface so that it will start to break it up. More than that, I'd need to take you to Brazil to learn about, because we're not experts in how to understand the enzymes, but we are becoming experts in how to use them. And this is a, a video of one of our films in very small piece, in a very thin section, under a confocal microscope. And what Alvaro is doing in this is he is measuring how rapidly and how completely the cocktail of enzymes degrades the cellulose film. What was the time frame on this, Elvara? Um, right. So overnight, the film has disappeared. That's okay. Remember, you're not waiting for this to happen in the store. This is happening in a facility where we are recovering the metals or the various other bits. Now you might say, well, that's all very well. You're going to have the bits floating around. How is that going to help you recover the metals? The answer is that my engineering friends tell me that one of the best ways to, to pre-concentrate metals before you go for recovering the pure metal is to use something called density flotation. So once you've chopped these up into small bits and you've got lots of bits of metal in your liquid, you can change the density of the liquid and separate off metals that are enriched in certain, sorry, components that are enriched in certain metals. 
which are now in little bits. And they tell me that that is a very good start in re actively recovering those metals. That's what we're aiming to do. But remember, we didn't have pure cellulose. We'd put things into it to make it flame retardant. We'd put things on the surface to make it printable and to stop it absorbing so much water. And, well, we set out to do these experiments to see if adding some of these fillers or treating the surfaces hugely changed it. And at first it looked pretty good. We've still got somewhere between about 75% for the worst one and 100% activity. We were pleased. We got our best hydrofurbizing agent and whoops, it dropped right down. It's not nothing. It still does degrade, but it degrades more slowly. And that's possibly not too surprising because enzymes recognize cellulose surfaces. We've changed the cellulose surface. So there is some work to be done here, and I, I won't show it to you, but Elvira has done some work about how you might change the surface and therefore recover the activity. But each time you solve one problem, something else develops that needs to be dealt with, and some more science has to follow. I'm going to move now into the people part, and I'll go through this relatively quickly, because I think we all understand people, because we are people, but actually we don't understand people, because just read this line, emotionally durable product service system. What on earth does that mean? Well, what it means, this is about how you get the product, where you get the product from, where you send it back to, how it's made, basically its whole life through the manufacturing and use period. This is you, attached, we hope, to your mobile phone. So we're back to the people problem, the complex bit, the bit that's not predictable. We want to know how we will develop such a product service system. And our colleagues in Loughborough do a lot of work on this. Because they design things, they also have to think about how we, as the customers, interact with them, and how we might be persuaded, not by saying, well, you really should do this, but because you have your own reasons for doing it, to return it into the manufacturing stream. And so they're working with the guys that are doing the skin to develop or to understand what a phone might look like that you would want to keep enough. And we do this in two ways. They do it by working with the customer. These customers are all very young. Well, that's probably appropriate for mobile phones, but it actually is a function of being in a university. And they do what's called bottom-up co-design. So these people are going to come up with what an ideal phone might look like to them. They think it'd be really cool if they could put their girlfriend's name on the back, and then when they broke up with them, if they could erase it and put a new girlfriend's phone name on the back and things like that. And honestly, these are the kinds of things that come out of it. It sounds silly but it triggers ideas in the designers' heads. They begin to understand why people behave certain ways. We also do top-down, so we think about the whole process. This is you and your house. This is the materials, the bits being made somewhere. How do they get from one part to the other? This took us a very, very long period of time with lots of sticky notes and huge pieces of paper to come up with what we thought the product service system currently looked like and some scenarios that might change if what you were doing was effectively leasing your innards. You think you lease your phone, but you don't really. You're just tying yourself into a contract with a particular company. True leasing would be if you just used it. You didn't actually own it at all. And then you gave it back when you wanted it upgraded. We're saying something between these two. You need to own and feel emotionally attached to some part of it. Otherwise, you just throw it away and buy a new one as long as you're not strapped for cash, and people don't seem to be, the rate they change their phones. And so this is what the product service system begins to look like when you develop it properly. And I won't go through all of these things, but you know, this is you, this is a collection center. I can't read the writing. This is a reclamation center. 
This might be consolidation. Eventually, it's probably going to move somewhere else because it's unlikely that we're going to do all of these operations onshore in the UK, so it might go to another country where things are perhaps done cheaper or more efficiently. It'll come back at some point. It'll have to be moved back and forth between these things. And so our colleagues in Loughborough plan this system, test this system, find out how manufacturers interact with this system, and it becomes astonishingly complicated, as does anything to do with humans. But this is important. If this doesn't work, if this link here, I think that's between, oh, that's somewhere between one of the factories, so you probably wouldn't care, but this is bringing it back to the distribution center. If this didn't work, you wouldn't be able to get your new bits because they wouldn't be there when you went along to get your phone changed over. So interesting sorts of work that you become, or you realize, are important when you're thinking about consumer products. And then finally, we have people who think about what happens on a much more global scale. What happens to societies when you start to change systems? People rely on manufacturing for jobs. There are lots of people that rely on recycling, including that informal recycling for jobs. What happens when you start to change that? What are the socioeconomic impacts and what are the environmental impacts? You could recycle anything with enough energy. Recycle a human being with enough energy. But it's not necessarily a good thing to be doing environmentally because if you're using a huge amount of energy to do that, you're generating probably more of an environmental problem than you started with. We have an interesting approach in our society. We carefully recycle our plastic bags, but we change our phones as often as we want to. So it does begin to become important then. What does the circular economy do to society? How do these things change? What does the society look like? And this is what our, our colleague Kirsty Hobson, who was at Oxford and has now moved to Cardiff, does. She thinks about these kinds of things. And I find it absolutely amazing. Because to me it becomes so complicated so quickly, I don't know how to approach it. It changes all sorts of things, and we are seeing these changes. We're seeing shifting consumption patterns. They're not necessarily in the right direction or what we think is the right direction. We tend to consume more and more and more and more and more. We are seeing sharing economies develop, though, and these are changing quite quickly. If you just think back 20 years ago, probably wouldn't have occurred to you that people were actually going to do things like own a drill communally. But it does happen in some societies now. And ethical and circular goods. Walk around the campus and you'll see almost everything is marked as fair trade because it's something that the university student union has decided very definitely is important for us to do. Again, probably 20 years ago you wouldn't have known what fair trade meant. So they think about how society is affected as we change the technology, as we change the manufacturing, and as we change the product. And Jackie Lee at Surrey does the really hard stuff of measuring whether we are actually improving things. So just because I've made a material that supports my organs in my phone, which can be broken down, am I certain that I'm not actually increasing greenhouse gas emissions over what would have happened in a controlled pyrolysis furnace? And she can tell me the answers to that, and she can tell us where the hotspots are in the processes that we're developing, so we can try and research the bits that are important. I'm going to end there, but I hope that what I've shown you is that thinking about renewably derived materials to enable sustainability through the application of technology is potentially interesting research. And what it hopefully means is that we can live within our means, because we only got one of these. And currently, if everyone lived the way we did, we'd need more than one. And no reason why they shouldn't. 
Various people that were involved, I won't go through the whole lot, but the clever team, um, where are you two guys? Saravan and Alvaro in the audience, they've done all of the work at Bath virtually. These are the guys that help us with the enzymes um, and the fire retardancy, we're colleagues at Bolton. And I thought I'd leave you with a rather cool picture. Oh, you so can you see them already? Yeah, huh, okay. It's, perhaps it's easier when it's big. It took me some time to actually see Lee Bolin, a Chinese artist who paints himself to match the backdrop. And this backdrop happens to be mobile phones. I think it's pretty cool art. Thank you very much. <laughs>